The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. How can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teachings he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honors at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers they will receive greater condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through third, fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please join our volunteers in the back by the kids' zone sign. If it's your child's first time, please go with them so that we can get them signed in. Good morning again. Since I've already talked at you so long, it kind of already feels like we did a sermon. Maybe I'll go short this time. Maybe. We continue our study of Mark. What we've been working through in Mark is that For the last several passages, people are just coming at Jesus. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, these people want to get him to say something wrong so they can kill him. And remember, we're on Tuesday. They're going to kill him on Friday. So even though we've slowed you down to treat each passage carefully and as we should, we're on Tuesday and it's Friday. They're going to kill him. So they keep coming at him, and he keeps kind of reversing what they think they're going to get done, and he leaves them embarrassed. And the crowds are watching Jesus and the Pharisees, Jesus and the Sadducees, Jesus and the chief priests, and Jesus and the scribes. And they're watching him, and the crowd's enjoying the fact that Jesus is dismantling these self-righteous rulers. And Jesus needs the crowd to see that his kingdom is different than a bunch of self-righteous people who think they're better than others. Now, he has dismantled them so thoroughly in each of the episodes that we've worked through that if you remember last week, the text ended with, after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. After that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. What that means is, is that he has been playing defense against them And now, since no one else will step up, Jesus goes on offense. Jesus goes on offense. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Why is he so bothered by these people? Why is he so bothered by these people? You're like, why does Jesus have to attack anyone? Well, think about this. These people 
have used religion and faith to puff themselves up to take advantage of the vulnerable. And Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing for the sake of the vulnerable. So the people who are leading his movement build themselves up to take advantage of the vulnerable, and Jesus has laid himself down to give advantage to the vulnerable. And he wants the crowds to know this is not what it's supposed to look like in my kingdom. That's what's going on here. Is in his final week, he wants the crowds to know what his kingdom was supposed to look like versus what these people are leading like. And so he's going to ask them some questions. He's going to go on the attack. Let's pray and ask God to bless our study of his word this morning. Lord Jesus, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? We thank you and we praise you that you love us, that you have given us grace. We thank you and we praise you that you care for us, that by the Holy Spirit's power, not mine, through the preached word and through the sacrament and through the worship, that the Holy Spirit actually meets us mysteriously and lifts our spirits and turns our eyes back to Jesus instead of away from our shoes. Would you do so this morning? If not, it's just another speech. It's just a religious exercise for people in religion to feel better about themselves because at least we're still going to church. We don't want to be like the scribes. We want to know Jesus. Would you give us your spirit? Move powerfully into this room now, we beg. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. My friends, Erin is the leader of Children's Church, and she writes a talk each week to give through the kindergarten through fifth graders. At the same time that we're listening to a sermon in here, they're engaging at age-appropriate level content in there so that they can connect with Jesus at a young age, continue to connect with Jesus at a young age. And so because of that, Aaron and me share notes with each other. So we will, I'll be working on the sermon, she'll be working on her talk, and then at the end of the week we'll come together and we'll share notes and stories and sermon ideas and illustrations and stuff like that. And sometimes hers is a lot better than mine. And it makes me mad. But she had this great sermon illustration in her talk, which I am now hijacking from Children's Church and delivering to you free of charge. <laughs> Beauty and the Beast. Do you remember Beauty and the Beast? It was this fantastic movie. It's one of my favorites when I was little. And now we're kind of re-watching back through the classics because of the kids. But Beauty and the Beast. In Beauty and the Beast, there is Gaston. Gaston. Gaston is a hunter, and he's strong, and he's burly, and he's hairy, and he's manly, and he loves himself. Loves himself. And the crowds love him too. The crowds love him too, but Gaston keeps getting frustrated because he wants Belle, and Belle wants nothing to do with him. 
So much that when he asks her to marry him, she's turned down. Gaston's heartbroken and goes to the bar. And his little friend tries to cheer him up. And this is what it says. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing. I'm not going to sing. Gosh, it disturbs me to see you, Gaston, looking so down in the dumps. Every guy here'd love to be you, Gaston, even when taking your lumps. There's no man in town as admired as you. You're everyone's favorite guy. Everyone's awed and inspired by you, and it's not very hard to see why. No one's slick as Gaston. No one's quick as Gaston. No one's neck is as credibly thick as Gaston, for there's no man in town half as manly, perfect a pure paragon. You can ask any Tom, Dick, or Stanley, and they'll tell you whose team they prefer to be on. I'm not going to sing. No one's been like Gaston, a kingpin like Gaston. No one's got a swell cleft in his chin like Gaston. As a specimen, yes, I'm intimidating. My, what a guy, that Gaston. Okay, I have to touch, just one more, okay? Just one. <laughs> As you see, I've got biceps to spare. Not a bit of him scraggly or scrawny, that's right, and every last inch of me's covered with hair. And he takes his shirt off and shows that every, okay, enough for that. <laughs> the room that Gaston is in, they all love Gaston. Gaston loves Gaston and draws attention to Gaston. And that's what it's like for the scribes. They dress differently than everyone else. Everyone else wears multiple colors, bright colors. That's what culturally they would do. The scribes would only wear white bleached robes so that they would stand out in a crowd. They wanted people's attention. They wanted people's money. They wanted to be greeted in the marketplace. They wanted to be special, like Gaston. And Jesus wants to make clear to the crowds who are watching, and the crowds are watching, wants to make clear that the kingdom of self that these guys are promoting is not the same kingdom that Jesus is promoting. Not the same kingdom that Jesus is promoting. Why does he need to make that point so badly? Friends, because in three days, they're going to kill him. In three days, they're going to kill him. And these people are currently leading the movement of Israel. And so Jesus takes it from defense to offense so that the crowd here, will, the crowd then, would know Jesus is not saying the same thing these people are. And he uses a, a riddle to confuse them. And I know the riddle in your text looks hard to unwind, but we'll go slow and we'll be careful. And we'll make sure you can articulate what Jesus' point is in one sentence by the time that we're done with it. But would you look with me in verses 35 through 37? It's tough to follow. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? 
and the great throng heard him gladly. The crowd loves that Jesus is going after these guys, these self-important guys. So he puts to them this question, how is he his son? How is he his son? And that's what we're going to walk through. So Jesus uses Psalm 110. Now I know Psalm 110 doesn't jump off the page to us. It's not one of the more uh, famous ones for our generation and culture. But the commentators say that Psalm 110 for the New Testament crowd was to us like Psalm 23 is. Like you're familiar with it, some of you can recite it. That's how important Psalm 110 is. It's called a messianic psalm. And a messianic psalm is meaning the writer of the psalm by the power of the Holy Spirit is seeing into the future. That's the the messianic prophetic psalm. He's seeing into the future and having this interaction about what things are actually like. So in other words, it's not just a song. It's a song about what's going to happen in the future. And David is the one singing this song. And Jesus uses this psalm because they know that the Messiah will be the son of David. And they know that the Holy Spirit is the one who crafts scripture through the personality and the gifts of the songwriter or the scripture writer. And so Jesus has them because they believe in this text. He picks a text that the scribes would look at and say, yes, that's true. And he uses that to undo them. Here's how. Here's the question. Kent Hughes asks it this way. How can the Messiah be both David's son and his Lord if he is merely a human? Okay. How can the Messiah be both David's son, David, long gone. So the Messiah could be David's son, great, great, great grandson. But how could his great, great, great grandson also be his Lord? You get it? He's doing this to illustrate something important. What's going on is is that Jesus is now telling them publicly that he is the Messiah. But watch carefully. When they come at him to prove to him that he's not the Messiah, this is what they mean. The Messiah is supposed to come as a militaristic, nationalist, king, Jew. That's how the Messiah is supposed to come. Somebody who can conquer Rome. Somebody who is a nationalist hero and will crown him king over Rome. And you're not him. And Jesus is saying, not only am I a Messiah for Israel and for everyone else, I am so much greater than you could possibly understand. I'm the eternal son of God. So they say, you're not the Messiah. And he says, not only am I the Messiah, your little Messiah couldn't hold a candle to what I'm about to do. That's what's going on, okay? I know it's hard to follow. It's convoluted. The Lord said to my Lord, it's hard. One commentator said this, what he appears to be saying is that when you understand the Messianic Psalm, the Messiah, who will of course be David's son, we all agreed on that. Whoever shows up as the Messiah, it'll come from the line of David. It'll come from the line of David. The Messiah who will be of course David's son will also be someone David rightly calls Lord. Now how does that work? How does King David, the greatest king in Israel's history, have a son who is the Messiah? And King David also has to call this king, 
Lord. Well, that could only be true if the king was eternal. The king was eternal. So Jesus doubles down. They're mad because they think he thinks he's David's son, crowned to be the military king of Israel, and he says, oh boy, fellas, do I have some news for you. Not only am I your Messiah, but you are thinking too little. I'm also the eternal son of God, so David's Lord too. What he invites us into is to deal with him on his own terms. And it's so important that we do that because it is very easy for us in the church and those in the city, those who have heard of different faith narratives, Buddhism, Islam, Christianity, and say, they're all the same and even Jesus would be okay with that. Even Jesus would be okay with that. Here's C.S. Lewis saying very powerfully and historically why that's impossible to give Jesus some street cred, but to not give him exclusive street cred. This is C.S. Lewis, not me. Jesus told people their sins were forgiven. This only makes sense if he was really the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. I'm trying to tell people, I'm here trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher but I don't accept his claim to be God. Listen to Lewis, get him. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Thank you, C.S. Lewis. They are looking at him and saying, you are not who you say you are. And he's looking at them and saying, not only am I who I say I am, I am something that you cannot possibly fathom. And that is the call to you to believe. He is who he says he is or he's not. But again, no condescension about him being a great human teacher. He's crazy or he's a monster or he is King Jesus, the Messiah, the eternal son of God come to save the world, and we fall on our feet, fall on our knees. That's what he's left open to us. One other commentator says this, Wright continues, sorry, Wright says, the astonishing and revolutionary idea that Jesus was not speaking about Israel's God, this is a good one, this is worth the cost of admission, listen, was not speaking about Israel's God acting, sorry, one more time. The idea that Jesus was not just speaking about Israel's God acting decisively to establish the kingdom. He believed he was embodying Israel's God doing all of this. I'm not just here to tell you about it. I am it. 
and they don't believe him. They have underestimated who Jesus is. They have underestimated who Jesus is, and it's so easy for us to look at them and say, how could you underestimate Jesus? Underestimate Jesus. How could you do that? He is the God-man who will vanquish death in three days. He is the God-man who will be tortured, and I mean tortured, flogged, spit on, punched, nails driven through his wrists and his feet. Underestimate Jesus. He is the one who the Father will pour out all the wrath of my ugly, nasty sin all of your nasty sin, the punishment for that, he will pour out that wrath on Jesus so much that the lights go out that day. The lights go out because God is pouring out wrath on his son out of love for you so that you can get Jesus' record and Jesus will pay for yours. And instead of walking away from it, he hangs there and he takes it. Underestimate Jesus He hangs there and he takes it. And not only that, he speaks forgiveness onto the people who are killing him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Underestimate Jesus, the God who gives us the Holy Spirit to provide for us, to care for us, to sustain you, to enliven you. The God who takes your every single call in heaven every single time you dial. The God who understands your weakness and surprisingly feels pity for you when you sin. Pity. Underestimate Jesus. The God who will not for one second leave your side because he has promised not to. The God who will walk with you when you can only limp and he will carry you when you can't walk. The God who has gone to make a better place for you forever with him. The God who wants his enemies to become his friends. The God who justifies the wicked. The God who will someday wipe every single tear from your eye. Underestimate Jesus. The God who will make sense of your pain and then destroy it forever. Friends, the scribes and the Pharisees underestimate him, and before I wag my finger in their face, I'm just like them. Do you underestimate Jesus? We're such a new church. We can't survive in a pandemic. We're such a young church. We can't buy an expensive building. We're a church, there's no way skeptics and seekers will show up. Friends, I constantly underestimate him. And I have the sense that maybe, just maybe you do too. That just as the scribes have underestimated him and we as a church have underestimated him, where have you underestimated him? Have you underestimated his love for you? That you think... He's loved you because it was a plan and he had to and now he just kind of coldly, aloofly tolerates you. But you need to stay in line or you're in trouble. Possible that you've underestimated love that is so vast, so immeasurable that you're not even close to running out of fuel. That you're nowhere near it. 
that you have the smile of God so profoundly over your life that nothing you can do will separate from you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We underestimate him too. We think the next sin, the one that we say we're not going to do anymore, and then sure enough, nighttime comes and we do it. That's the sin that's going to push it over the edge. And he says, underestimate Jesus. You live under the finished work of Christ. That is gone and dead forever. You have my highest fondness. I love you like I love Jesus. Of course I've got your back. Friends, do you underestimate Jesus? It'll change our life. It'll change our life as a church if we began to believe Jesus is who he says he is. To believe that Jesus, all those sinners in the city and all those bad people making bad decisions and, and doing bad things, that that's, those are the people that he loves. Those are the people that he wants to justify the wicked. And strangely enough, he uses a bunch of wicked people like us to go tell them. And the reason that we'll go tell them is not because we have it together, is because we can fairly squarely look them in the eye and say, I get it. I get it. Don't underestimate Jesus in this city and in your heart. So why do the scribes bother him so much? Why do they bother him so much? Think through this with me. He who in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He was a king in a throne room experiencing total happiness and love, inner Trinitarian happiness, joy, and love. And he says, I'll go down there and get him. I'll give up my throne room and my angels that worship me and tend to me, and I will go and I will be born nowhere from no ones to go after the nobodies. I'll go. I will lay it all aside and I will go for the sake of the vulnerable. And now here, the scribes amass pride like Gaston. They want people to give them power and notoriety, people to be impressed with them, people to be giving their money over to them so that they can extort the vulnerable. So here in this galactic moment, you get to see what religious, religious is, is like, which one you will choose. You have a king who has laid it all aside for the sake of the vulnerable, and you've got self-righteous religious people who amass it all at the cost of the vulnerable. And Jesus wants that crowd who is just loving it. He wants that crowd to have it firm in their minds what religion they will choose because he has three days left. Three days left. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes. I want you to notice this, friends. And Mark, Mark doesn't give us any inkling that the, the um, audience has changed. So Jesus is standing with the scribes looking for an answer that they can't give. And they're quiet. And the crowd's smiling. And he says... Beware of the scribes. Be uncomfortable, but he's still standing there. Who like to walk around in long robes and greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. 
It bothers him so much because real kingdom love and action are defined by making yourself small to help the vulnerable, not making yourself large to extort the vulnerable. They'd wear long white robes, bleached white robes, when everyone else was in bright colors so they would stand out. They liked to be called rabbi or master or father. They wanted attention. My dad was in the military early in his life, and he remembers a time on one of the bases. It's sort of an area where the grocery stop was on the base and the, and the barber was on the base. And there's this rule in the military that when you see the general's car, which is noted by a flag on the general's car, you stop what you're doing and you turn and snap to and you wait till the general is gone. My dad remembers that there were people out, moms and families, and there were officers talking and joking around, and the general drives by really slowly, and nobody really pays attention. General pulls his car over, walks up to the crowd of people, and lights them up. Do you not know that I could have you all written up when you see the general's flag? You turn and you look and you snap too. That's what the Pharisees, that's what the scribes wanted. My dad remembers thinking, I think the power has gone to his head. Friends, I think the power has gone to their heads. And if we're not careful, it can still go to pastor's heads too. Not a week goes by when there is not another minister who has traded his integrity for something else. I actually live afraid of it. I mark down their names in my phone as a somber reminder to me that this isn't about me. And I'd ask you, when you serve, when you talk about Jesus, is it about you or is it about him? That's why he has the stern warning for him. They will receive the greater condemnation. It says in James 3, not many of you should desire to be teachers because if you desire to be teacher, you will be graded more strictly than everyone else. I think about that a lot. When we get to heaven, I have a stricter, stricter rubric against me than you do. And these guys... Were all about self. They wanted to be recognized. They wanted power. They didn't want to love the people who needed it. And we as a church cannot follow suit. Wanting to be recognized, wanting power, not loving the ones who need it. We can't follow suit. Tim Keller says it this way. And some, these persons do not see ministry so much as an opportunity for service and sphere for management and career advancement. Jesus is saying, you can trust me, but do not trust yourself. You can trust me, but do not trust proud, self-righteous people. That's what Jesus is saying. As we close here, that's what I want you to dwell on. Don't underestimate Jesus' love for you. Don't underestimate who Jesus says he is. Don't underestimate Jesus' grace. We as a church, I want us to live risky in the sense that we believe so much that God is on our behalf and loves us and is working on us and is working through us that we will step out in faith and do ludicrous things like buy buildings and press on into the city 
and plant churches. We want to believe, not that we have rightly estimated Jesus, but that he has so much more grace, so much more love, so much more plans yet to do, and we just want to keep up with him. Friends, let us as a church not underestimate Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, you are enough. You said so. It is finished on the cross. Your finished work on the cross means that we are free, that we are loved, that we are sons and daughters. That from now and forever, we're on your side because you justify the wicked. Would you help us to look like it and live like it? That we expect you to move in our lives. We expect that you love us. We expect that you have grace. We expect you to move through your church in this city because you love to move. Because you are enough. And you want your enemies to know that you are enough. Would you help us to live like it and trust like it? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In this city, because you love to move. Because you are enough. And you want your enemies to know that you are enough. Would you help us to live like it and trust like it? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.